Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Today on the show, bookseller extraordinaire Josh Cook of Porter Square Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His new book is called The Art of Libromancy on selling books and reading books in the 21st century. That book is out now. It's a really great conversation about bookselling and reading, so let's get right into it. Can you talk to me about who you were in 2004 as you entered the bookselling community? Yeah, I was a writer and I still am, of course, but I had gotten out of college, chosen not to pursue an MFA for a few different reasons. I've done a couple of years in a program called AmeriCorps VISTA, which is like a domestic Peace Corps working in area local nonprofits, providing various levels of support. Some family issues brought me to the Boston area, and it just occurred to me that not really wanting anything else but to be a writer, a bookstore might be a good place for a writer to work. And so I applied a couple different places, almost all of which have gone out of business between then and now, and just happened to be in the Porter Square Books neighborhood, saw that they were coming and waited for them to put up the help wanted sign. And when they did, I applied and here I am. So I, 2004, Josh was very much an aspiring writer trying to find the best place to tread water while I got better at writing and built a career there. What are your early memories of being a bookseller? Do you remember Baby Josh Bookseller? How different was that person than the person you are now? Yeah. Portiscore was an interesting place to get started as a baby bookseller. Almost everyone had worked together for years at uh, the Concord Bookshop, hmm. and there was a kind of management kerfluffle that, that feels very much like ancient history now. But the result was 90% of the staff knew each other and had experience and so they were just filling in the gaps that they needed in coverage. And so my first coworkers were all very experienced booksellers. So I got to see some really great hand selling from Gary, who has since retired, and Susanna, who has since retired, for example. People I saw work really well with, with customers. At that time, the store was a lot less busy. So I did a lot of dusting. Uh, <laughs> we were one of, we we're not one of the dusty stacks of teetering book books type of bookstore as we were uh, relatively well-lit, relatively clean. So I did a lot of dusting and I was part-time to start just working weekends and, and evenings while I was doing some other stuff. And it was both a relatively easy entrance. New stores aren't always terribly busy, even when they are built by people with such experience and such skill in the field as the founders of the Porter's Great Books were. And, and then I got to know publishers, I got to know writers, I got to know sales reps. And it was when I started getting galleys and started being connected that way and through regional and, and national educations that I started shifting my perspective from a writer treading water to a writer who is also a bookseller now. At some point between then and now, the thought occurred to you all at once or slowly over time that your gig could be or is already 
something in addition to let's say 2004 cloud pointing see people at cloud atlas and then ringing them up how did how how did that start did you have an early experience how did you develop an emerging critical consciousness about what you did with your paid time yeah there are a couple of different kind of points where i started connecting to the wider book world there were early winter institutes winter institute is the national educational conference organized by the american booksellers association that brings booksellers from around the country getting connected to those conversations. This would have been a few years after after I started going to publisher dinners and then meeting authors and then being connected to the community and starting to see where publishing wasn't living up to what I thought it could do. Mm-hmm. And really beginning to see my role as an advocate for authors and books that did not get the, the attention they deserved or would not be noticed by customers without my help probably my favorite thing to hear as a bookseller is for someone to say, I love that book. And I know I never would have found it if I hadn't chatted with you. And that was a a fairly kind of just individual political choice. I've always been a lefty. I've always uh, had that in me. So that's always influenced how I've approached everything that I do from my writing to my cooking to to my bookselling. And eventually, and we can maybe talk, get to that mm-hmm. past the seven years, it became clear that that wasn't just a political expression for me. That wasn't just me honoring my values. That kind of building connections and reaching across the divide between uh, readers and books is what independent bookstores do. And it's why they're valuable. Um, it's why people will pay more for them than at for books from them than from other places. And that is um, not something that ends with the transaction. Mm. It is, it creates a memory, it creates a moment, it creates a story. And that builds a long-term relationship that is, I think, a huge part of what will make independent book selling a sustainable business that can actually pay livable wages to its employees. My early memories of buying books at an independent bookstore, The Great Raven in Lawrence, Kansas, which you mentioned is one of the models of employee ownership. Feeling like the books came from, I don't know, Mount Olympus, or if you like it a little darker, maybe it came from down there, wherever you think the magic place that books come from, but that it's a very human enterprise. Mm -hmm. It's a very tactile enterprise. It's a very capitalist enterprise. It's a very logistics heavy enterprise. What do you think, what would you like people who come into an independent bookstore to know about the process of book selling that Mm -hmm. you feel like they don't really, the realities of it, they may not understand? Yeah. You touched on a fair amount of it in just the amount of labor mm. that goes into a book. So if we start with the author, if we're talking traditionally published books, so in the traditional way, so they have an agent who's read it and done an editing process with that. And that can be from dozens to hundreds of hours. There is the submission process and that can be dozens to hundreds of hours. There is the acquisition process. So this is acquisitions editors that can be dozens to hundreds of hours. And there's the <laughs> editing process which again can be, that one's probably more hundreds to thousands of hours. Yeah, you can spend on, as much there as you want or don't want. Or and I think readers have a relatively good sense of that. Mm. You know, that's relatively intuitive. But then there's this next level. It, it's got to become an object. So there's the design and there's the cover design and there's the page layout and there's the choosing of the font and the trim size. And we're now we're dozens of hours again. And then it's got to get out in the world. And the publisher has to decide the best way to do that and the best way to support it. So there are sales meetings that the publisher has to decide what their strategies are for different books. And then there's the logistics of physically getting the books out. And then there's the connection between publishers and booksellers, probably the most unheralded 
kind of hero of book selling mm. is the publisher sales rep. And they are essentially booksellers to booksellers. They work for publishers. They recommend books that the, they think their stores should purchase and how many copies. And they're also customer service as well. And a lot of the great things that happen in bookstores is because of this very, you, you can't offshore this, you can't replace this with lower paid, not unexperienced work. It's a lot of institutional knowledge goes into it. And, but we're still, the book still isn't here yet. Yeah, right. We still need warehouse workers and delivery drivers. And then it gets to the store and it needs a receiver. It's the person who is, whose job it is to get the book from the box and back to the shelf. And then we're finally at the booksellers. And it is just the human endeavor is incredible. And the fact that you can purchase something like that to keep forever for eighteen ninety five mm. is both wonderful that it is accessible in that way, and also one of the challenges that publishing faces in in paying people what they deserve and what their actual worth is. I guess when you pick up a book, just for a moment, however you get it, whether you find it randomly or whether you get a recommendation from a bookseller, the cover grabs you, you are always going to pick it up. Just feel the weight of that human endeavor for a second and appreciate it. Part of realizing how many, how much time and effort goes into a book, you realize how many decisions have to be made. One word after the other, but there's decisions all along. And it doesn't, pointing to on the independent bookstore front, what books y'all buy and keep, and then where you put them and how you put them out. And one of the things I think your book does a really good job of connecting is that series of decisions, right? Those are all little cracks for systemic oppression to trickle into, right? So someone walks into Porter Square, a bookstore that, or, or a bookstore that is trying to do this. You make a distinction between radical, progressive, and conservative bookstores. Mm-hmm you're thinking in terms of what it means to be a progressive bookstore. So what does a progressive bookstore look like? And what kinds of decisions are you making to intervene, influence, or otherwise acknowledge the place you have in the transactional process? Progressive bookstore, it was tricky in the essay. Conservative seemed obvious because conservative is always looking backwards. And I think people are comfortable knowing that when you use that term, however you value conservative ideas, you understand that there's a kind of comfort with the status quo or comfort with a past status quo. Radical, you understand pretty easily as well as having a very kind of set focus, an activist focus. And I think radical, I say radical bookstores are very important to how we progress both as an industry and as a society. Um, Progressive bookstores, I see as um, acknowledging that all of those decisions happen in a world that is doing other things. It happens in the context of uh, oppression, white supremacy, and whatever decisions we make interact with those and either aid them or work against them. And so though a progressive bookstore might not have a set political agenda, they might not be, say, a socialist bookstore, they might not be a feminist bookstore, they might not be some of the other kind of versions of radical bookstores, they acknowledge that what they do has political impact. And they make those decisions to reflect those more general political values. You could walk into a progressive bookstore and you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, there are political things happening. And that's fine. As a customer, there are lots of different reasons to go into a bookstore. And even though buying that cozy romance novel for you isn't a political decision in that moment, 
those decisions that the decisions that put that book on that shelf for you do carry some of that weight. And so the real goal of a progressive bookstore is just to be an honest and active decision maker agent in this world through books in a way that supports the values they more generally uphold. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. What are some of the decisions you're talking about? What, how would that impact what someone actually sees on a table or with the cover out or when you run up to them and see they're wearing the Hold Steady t-shirt? Yeah. Like, How does that actually manifest itself in the book that someone actually ends up yeah. swiping their visa for? Yeah. So the biggest ways those manifest, there are probably three ways those manifest. First is just the decision to stock something at all. Let's stop there for just a second. Yeah. This is something that's also hard to know, especially if you're a bookstore goer, how many books there are coming out all the time. Like what you say, deciding what to stock is it's, I'm going to have the fish or or the chicken, Right. but how hard is that really to, are there a bunch of books you guys would love to carry in a Borgesian infinite library sort of situation? Like how hard is that to do? Yeah. So this is one of the things that I only know indirectly because I am not a buyer, but I have looked at catalogs for other reasons and- So Random House, Penguin Random House now, for example, has multiple seasons and they have color coded multiple catalogs for both adults and and young readers. And this is thousands upon thousands of titles every year just from one kind of entity. And obviously you want to carry more than just what Penguin Random House publishes. So I think somewhere it's well over 100,000 new distinct titles published in English in the United States every year. There are tools that make that easier for buyers. There's a, a program called Above the Tree Line that helps them compare their sales with roughly equivalent mm. other bookstores. There is now a, a digital cataloging service called Edelweiss, which I think some bloggers and other readers and book reviewers yep. can connect with. And and that will also have sales data that helps. It, it's a really difficult it's, job. It's, it's hard. It feels like there's a lot of books when you go into an independent bookstore, but there's some multiplier of that could have been yeah. in a store at yeah. a given moment. Every book is a decision. Yeah. yeah. And the next is display. That can be a buyer's decision. So if a buyer is, for whatever reason, confident a book is going to sell well, They'll buy it in, they'll buy five, 10, 15, 20 copies. And then that kind of is in and of itself a signal to put this on display. That can also be a decision made by individual booksellers working on the floor as they fill gaps in displays or as they express themselves with how Mm -hmm. they face things out or put them on tables or some stores have merchandisers and people who specialize in displays. Hmm. It can be their decisions as well that will do that. If there are booksellers listening to this, they'll have a hundred different reasons, sure. ways to do that. And the third is in direct recommendations. So either staff picks, depending on how stores do that. Portage Square Books does it monthly. Some stores will just have kind of fluid rotating staff pick displays. Some others will do it monthly. Some others will do it a different way. And that also, I think, includes times when we promote things on social media, right. as well as in those personal conversations. 
I write about the idea of advocacy in one of the other essays, and that fits in with this discussion about the progressive bookstore mm-hmm. as well. Is when I, and I think I, I write about this in that essay as well. When I recommend a book, I always try to do more than one thing. I try to fit it with what the customer is asking for to the best that I can tell. And also, is it a book that helps the world be what I think it should be? And so that is the next distinction between, say, a progressive bookstore and a conservative bookstore. A conservative bookstore might not ask that second question, might not ask what else can this book do besides satisfy this one instant need. Then, of course, a radical bookstore would say, okay, what fits our mission that satisfies this need? The actual physical location of the bookstore matters, right? You're you're in Cambridge, one of the great bookish neighborhoods in in the world. But you also noticed that space matters in terms of thinking about genre, about thinking how we organize books, how we relate books to each other. This is always a frustration because, as you say, a book can only be in one place. It's funny that you use Never Let Me Go, one of my favorite books I podcast about before, which is Nobel Prize Literary Fiction and maybe a love story. You mm-hmm. could do that. It's science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction in a very strict sense. And that, and not to put Claire in the Sun and some others by your girl. Where do you push your girl? So walk me through the difficulty of saying, where am I going to put specifically never let me go? Because then how it relates to the issue go is interesting too. Walk me through the choices yeah. you have when you're shelving never let yeah. me go. So the question, we have two questions that we ask when we decide where a book should live physically in the bookstore. Where does it belong? (laughs) And where are the most readers going to look for it? And so we have to play this kind of telepathy where we try to get in the minds of readers and guests. Now there's information that helps us understand that. We can see when we move a book from one place to another, if the sales go up or if they go down. There's also, you know, some guidelines that are very helpful in terms of how the genres define themselves. A cozy mystery, it, it, if you have a special section for cozy mysteries, you're not going to put uh, those slasher Scandinavian noir in them because mm-hmm. that is so both the people looking for cozies aren't going to want to see those in there and they also belong there. Um, the challenge becomes when there's a lot of fluidity in both of those questions. And then if you throw on how genre has been used as in in political senses that gets even more complicated and for far too long there has been this idea and i think it's fading now of capital l literature this is what serious people read it's what serious people write and oh it's just a coincidence that both these sets of serious people are white guys and how bookstores put books in genres interacts with that i think we are lucky now that this is really starting to erode in in meaningful ways i think book media coverage is getting better at not treating different types of stories as having inherent values. We do have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And so we come to Ishiguro, where the type of technology described in Never Let Me Go still doesn't exist. That is still, and the kind of easiest definition of science fiction is a book whose plot is centered around technology that still does not exist. And it could be near technology, far technology, human technology, alien technology, but it's still technology that is not present in today's world. And so by the most obvious definition of science fiction, Never Let Me Go belongs there. But who's going to look for it there? Ishiguro's other Remains of the Day is probably Ishiguro's most other 
right. most famous other work. That is certainly not science fiction. And there is still this perception of he's a Nobel laureate. He possibly wouldn't be in this genre. And in a perfect world, it actually wouldn't matter all that much where we put him. But there wouldn't be political implications to putting him in fiction. But there is some. And mm-hmm. so he presents and every kind of literary author who writes recognizable genre fiction presents that problem for bookstores. And there are no easy solutions, or rather, there are tons of solutions, but it can be difficult for any one bookstore to choose what is right for them. So Porter Square, we, our sci-fi section does not have the square footage it really needs. And Ishiguro, a lot of his other work fits in that literary fiction. So it all stays in literary fiction. Will that stay that way forever? I don't know. Is that the correct answer for your other bookstore? Probably not. But it is one of those things that is that needs to be thoughtfully engaged with. To the organizational dilemma, or I don't know, trade-offs, I guess is maybe the best yeah. way to put it. You, I don't know if you throw off or you suggest or just hypothetically wonder about the alphabetical bookstore yeah. as a possibility. Can you walk through why that, the attractions and, and distractions of such an enterprise? Yeah. I do imagine a bookstore that is either alpha by author or alpha by title. No, no genres at all. And that's ex- interesting to me for a couple of different reasons. One, one of the advantages of physical bookstores is surprising juxtapositions, right. is things being next to each other that you don't necessarily expect them to be next to each other. And then finding and discovering cool things through those juxtapositions. That is a store that is only surprising juxtapositions. It also gets rid of the problem completely. Yeah, it just you know, flattens genre, it out. Just yeah. flat, all shelf space is the same, and it's just where yeah. you are in the alphabet. Either yeah, way. yeah. Genre is ultimately an agreement. We agree as readers that this is the way we're going to categorize our books. We can imagine other ways, but this is just an agreement. And agreements always have fuzzy edges. And this genre, this no genre, just gets rid of the fuzzy edges. In the right mindset, I think it'd be a thrilling store to browse. In a different mindset, I think. You just walk right out the door Yeah. the second you realize that's how it's organized. Right. I don't know if someone could pull it off. Maybe they could. I can imagine it. The last thing we should do is limit how we imagine bookstores could be. I don't know if I'd want to work there. but It's so I do hard think- to imagine even because yeah. you have a Cartesian logic to it. If you're looking yeah. for a book, you know where it is. So that's not. Yeah. And then you get these sort of slot machine effect of Ishigurun being next to uh, Christopher Isherwood. I'm not yeah. that good at alphabetizing things right away. But the, what you want thing you give up for sure is like proximity to like things. If you want something like that, yeah. it doesn't really help you. Because I'm not a huge science fiction reader. I like it a little bit. But when I go to my local, I will walk through science fiction to see what's there. And I couldn't yeah. do that in the alphabetical bookstore. That's right. the, the signal trade-off. Sometimes you want a book with robots and lasers. Yeah. Right. And that would be a very difficult thing to find. I think the other thing that is interesting to me about this, that kind of hypothetical organization is authors who write across genre and ages. Yeah, right. So I think the example I use might be Jacqueline Woodson, who has written for, I don't know if she's done YA, but she's written picture books. She's written a bunch of picture books. She's written a bunch of middle grade. And so like you really experience an author's broad, when they have a broad impact, you really yeah. experience an author's broad impact when you see it all in one place in front of you like this person is incredible how are they where do they when do they sleep look at what mm. they have done but it's not and for her in particular and some other authors who write for multiple ages it's not like they're churning out 
And I don't mean that in a kind of negative way, but it's like they're creating from a set formula where they can yeah. fit in, they can meet their readers' expectations with familiar things and can be successful at that. They have to get into completely different mindsets and completely different relationships with language and still tell effective and compelling stories. And it'd be hard to to realize that in a bodily way in the, in the kind of traditionally laid out bookstore. And so the micro transaction of what we care, it's not micro, but the smaller transaction of what we carry, where we put it, how we present it to our customers connects at least by 2016, maybe before you tell me with, oh shit, they're part of this bigger thing that's happening. And it's not enough to do things the way we were doing them. Yeah. I think for that kind of 2004 to to 20, actually it was, yeah. So 2016, 2017, I had a, a, I think it's a perception that I think a lot of people share is that if it's books, it must be good. Like it must be morally good. I'm an independent bookstore. It's, it's not an end Amazon. in itself. It's yeah. one of those categorical kind yeah. of things. Therefore, it must be good. And yeah, there's this other stuff happening, like Rush Limbaugh selling books and Bill O'Reilly mm. selling books. But like on balance, like this is inherently, this is inherently morally good. This is inherently working towards justice just by being a site of reading. And then Book Expo America, obviously, the fact that Donald Trump could be elected shook me as it shook nearly everyone, whether they see saw that shaking or not. And so, but it really wasn't until Sean Spicer was Donald Trump's first press secretary, was allowed to have pride of place at Book Expo America, which was the kind of major national kind of publisher presentation of their years of books. And he was on a main stage. With, I don't remember who he was interviewing with, but it was, it was exactly the kind of thing. It gets tons of media coverage. And it, obviously, the publisher paid Sure. That's how those things were. The publisher yeah. paid for that and, and Book Expo America took that money. But that's when it hit me like, why is this person being legitimized by our industry? Literally the very first thing he did was tell us not to believe our own eyes. His, his very first act as press secretary was to tell us that Donald Trump's inauguration had the highest attendance in history when we could all visually see that was not the case. Why are we as an industry that should acknowledge that truth is a complicated idea, but still work towards some understanding of truth, Mm. platform him in this way? And once you crack that open a little bit, you start to say, wait, why were we publishing Bill O'Reilly's as history? None of those would end up on any historian's syllabus. And why were we publishing Rush Limbaugh? And why were we doing other? And once you start digging, then you get to that regnery is distributed by Simon and Schuster. And you start to see this kind of tangle. And then you start looking into more how conservative political action committees do bulk orders to juice their sales. And, and it's a very odd situation where they get to essentially funnel royalties to an author. A lot of contracts make those less royalties for the author, but that's still make political donations, funnel them to the author, give them away as gifts. The New York Times, it was bad enough that the New York Times had to adjust how they calculate their bestseller list to account for these artificially inflated numbers. And to touch back to a theme that you introduced, every one of these things is a decision. Someone decided to cash the check that put Sean Spicer on that stage. Someone decided to continue to distribute the titles from Regnery or whoever else. Someone decided to take those bulk purchases and cash those checks. And each one of those decisions has an impact on the world. And the 
like though this book grew into something I hope is a bit more broadly mm-hmm. broadly interesting to readers. It started with that: why are we doing this? What are better decisions we can make if we want to be the site of social justice and the site of kind of relative moral good that we have always told people we are? How do we change? What do we do better? What decisions do we make now? I know there's a long history of booksellers being underpaid, yeah. but unionization efforts and co-ops seems as an interested outsider to have accelerated dramatically over the last five to 10 years. It seems that way to me. I think a few things have happened. I think I think the Trump kind of general political consciousness, I think, is, is a huge part of that. I also think social media has allowed yeah. booksellers to talk to each other in ways that had never happened before. And it's an odd thing to say, but book Twitter was really important in all of the conversations that you and I are having now and the industry is having in and of itself, because we were starting to see, we could suddenly see trends that we couldn't see before. Mm-hmm. Like we suddenly realized that, oh, it's not just me working double overtime with no extra pay. It's actually you too. It's actually, it's not just you too. It's actually you three, four, five. And being able to share stories in that way. And this also, I think, was greatly helped by Winter Institutes, which is, again, that national meeting of booksellers organized by the American Booksellers Association that also had a lot of social space where we could all get together and talk. And and specifically, not just ownership and management, but frontline hourly booksellers um, were specifically encouraged and cultivated to attend. And I think that built a lot of the connections that are necessary for the consciousness that leads to unionization, for example, or other kind of pushes for liberal mm-hmm. wages. And then that all hit 2016. And then it also interacted with the pandemic. That right. was probably the next big bump in class or worker consciousness. One thing I hadn't seen laid out quite like you laid it out is the kind of cycle of low wages. Lower wages be- means there's lower profits because you don't have experienced booksellers who aren't as productive on an hourly basis because they don't have the the level 17 liberomancy skill that they've been leveling up and rolling the dice on for the last 15 years. You're quite candid about turnover as a problem and COVID was its own own beast for so many people. But talk about this cycle of breaking the cycle of low wages, high turnover, low wages, high turnover, that kind of steam mill that just keeps churning and churning. Yeah, no, you're, and I actually love the kind of D and D metaphor because that really is what happens: is you have someone they build up experience, and then because it's a lot to know, and it's, it's, an, it's, it's not amazing. the kind of amazing. It's amazing yeah. how much you have to know. There's emotional intelligence you have to build up as well. It's not the kind of thing you just could take a couple courses on and read a couple books and be good at. I probably, you know, I don't think I was particularly good at hand selling for the first five years that I was at Porter Square Books. Some people are more natural at it mm-hmm. than maybe I was and can get, get better and can be good at it in in you know right away. But this is one of the kind of fundamental challenges. And this is one of the reasons why I try and propose a, a number of creative ideas, because as retail without much price control, that margin that booksellers have to work with, that have to pay their employees with is very thin. And when it's not thin, it's, it can be precarious. Yeah. And so the challenge then becomes being comfortable with that and accepting it and not striving to not being creative. So like the the employee ownership model that Porter Square Books, that David and Dina pioneered that allowed at least management level mm-hmm. booksellers. So that kind of 17th level Libramancers to have to have some extra income based on the store's performances and to, and to have something to look to look forward to, to look right. forward to full store ownership. That type of thinking is what we need because 
we do lose money. And, and it, it's one of those things where because it's not money we already have, it's hard to see. I, I think I included a stat that the ABA had, but I can't remember it off the top of my head of just how much is lost each time you have to trade someone new, but because it's yes. not taken out of your bank account, we don't see it. The question is, how does your store, and it's going to be different for all types of stores, break that cycle so that you can start actually reaping that that benefit? And I think now uh, there's such a hunger for community and books, like mm. now is the time to try. Bookstores are doing better now than maybe they have once we're after COVID, maybe now than they've, in my memory, at least, certainly. And so there might be the flexibility now that stores didn't have. They just have to see that as investment and not as overhead. I'm going to get you out on a question like this. What would you like me and all the people I represent to know about being a good, supportive patron and walking in the bookstore, what you're looking for, what we can do, how you can help us, and to be in relationship with your bookstore and bookseller? Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways, I think, that are really easy and don't necessarily cost you any more than you were intending to spend. On kind of an emotional level, booksellers love hearing when their recommendations hit. So if you have gotten a good recommendation, go back and tell the bookseller or send or find the bookstore's email address and email them yeah. and let them know. Everyone can relate to that. Everyone, like, you recommend a TV show or an album to someone and they say you love it. Every Just imagine yeah. doing that all day and getting that feedback. Yeah, that's an yeah. easy one. I like. Yeah. I love that. And when you show, and when it's in a way that can be seen by managers, now you're making that <laughs> argument yeah, for yeah. making those raises. And also take risks. If a bookseller, mm-hmm. if you go up to a bookseller and say, I just want the book you love now. I know I want to buy a book today. I just want the book that you love now. And give it a chance. The worst things that happens is you find out it's not for you and you find you give it to a friend it is. If we're not talking about shopping, one thing that I always ask people to do is if you are talking about books in your life, connect that to a bookstore. Hmm. If you're like tweeting with a friend of yours or blue skying, I don't know what they call it now. <laughs> if you are talking about a book in a public manner, include a link to a to an independent bookstore. If you've got a favorite, link to that one. That does two things. Direct links are more likely to create a sale. So if your friend is like, oh, that does look cool. I click it. Oh, I'll just buy it right now. But it also introduces your circle to that store. And that doesn't cost you anything. I guess I'll throw in one more. Sure. If you are, if you can plan well enough, do your holiday shopping, not in December. <laughs> I know we all, I do most of my holiday shopping in December. That's one of those things where it is just, we are all, um, now programmed to do it then. But if you are able to do your holiday shopping in October or September, um, not only will you probably have a much better experience because uh, yeah. you won't be fighting the lines and the booksellers will not be exhausted. Um, it's good for stores because it spreads out their cash flow, which can be very useful for wages and for everything else. And it also means that when that crunch time happens, they are able to get through more of that crush because you have removed yourself yeah. from it. So if you're going to spend $100 at an indie bookstore this Christmas, if you can do it in October, that, that same $100 will have a much bigger and much more positive impact. Yeah. So from a cash flow point of view, you get the $100 earlier, you can smooth out P&Ls and all that kind of stuff that goes into it. But also yeah. you're the kind of person that's likely to spend that $100 no matter what. You take yourself out of the bookstore on December 22nd, yeah. the marginal customer, the person off the street... There's one less body trying to yeah. slam into the subway car. The I person guess. who needs more help. Yeah. The yeah. person who who needs us to pick out something right. for uncle, their uncle Jeff, and they won't buy a book unless we have the time to actually give them to make a good recommendation. We can get to them. We'll be it'll be more easy. It'll be easier for us to get to them 
if you've taken care of your Uncle Jeff in October. I said that was the last one. I lied. This is the last one because I have it down here and I have to ask this because yeah. it's fun and this is the kind of thing people like. You mentioned a bunch of specific books that you've made a part of your recommending repertoire that, that yeah. you know that you have a special relationship to. Is there a book that you think you probably or maybe you are the greatest indie champion of? Who are you? What book out there do you, you feel like you might be the standard bearer for? That's probably Ducks Newbury Paul, the okay. Lucy Elman. I wondered if you were going to say um, that. I've got the I've got the tattoo. So it's got to it be <laughs> it's got to be that one. We sold over. I think we. I don't know if we're at three hundred copies now, but we were at uh, well over two hundred fifty when I stopped looking. It'd probably be that one. Oh. There are a few others that I think I I've done well. That the maybe the, the publishers would actually probably like feminist press could tell you if anyone else has sold right. more copies oh. of translation as transhumans than we have. There there are definitely booksellers who have done better with specific books. Mark Haber when he was at Brazos. I think was in the 400s for Mara Zabo's The Door, <laughs> just like based on his just like passion for it. It became a running joke on book Twitter. So yeah, I think for me, it would probably have to be a time of writing. This would probably have to be Ducks Newbury Report, which if it stays Ducks Newbury Report, I'll be very proud of. And this is a way to tie it back to your book. You have a really nice chapter on um, reading, let's say, difficult to you books. It could be, yeah. depends on the book, can be difficult for all kinds of people. I thought that was a really helpful um, step by step for people who encounter ducks. New ducks is what a thousand pages, John, yeah, about something 11, like yeah, that. Yeah, eleven hundred. Yeah. Um, but they, there's several things you can do. Keep an open mind. I love your idea of just get through it. Like the writer, yeah. shitty first draft, get yeah. through it and just have the experience. I won't give away all your tips so that people will go check out the art of libromancy. By the time this episode is out, it's coming out August twenty second. I think this will be a couple days before, a couple days after. Great. The book is out. Josh Cook, Porter Square Books, The Art of Libromancy. Go order it from your local indie or any indie that you love, wherever books can be sold by someone who knows what they're talking about and will recommend you an 1,100-page book he has a tattoo of. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you very much. Huge thanks to Josh for coming on. Again, The Art of Libromancy. Go check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Also, if you want to follow along on Instagram, I'm doing some stuff on Instagram, Twitter, the newsletter, all the links are there. Shoot me an email, first edition at bookriot.com. Love getting listener email, love writing back to listeners. And finally, if you've got a second, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes for theirs. The show notes has got all the stuff that you want. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your all time and attention. And until next time, read something great.